Happy Friday to you from the entire New Mexico and Focus team. This is Kevin McDonald, executive producer, and today is Friday, April 10th, 2020. Again, we are all consumed this week, as I know you are, with the COVID-19 outbreak in New Mexico. At the time of this recording, we were approaching the 1,000 mark for the total number of cases in the state, and life just continues to change and evolve into a new situation for all of us here a month into a mode of staying at home, trying to stay away from other people, social distance, all those important things you have heard. We've got a lot of great information for you again this week, which is an important week for a lot of folks. It's Faith Week with both Passover and, of course, Easter Sunday. We're going to talk to some folks about what they are doing to try to feel edified during these times where normally they might be taking pilgrimages or meeting with other congregation members to celebrate these important uh, days for them. But we want to start this week with the line. Uh, Once again, we're doing this virtually online so that we keep that physical distancing that's so important in place as well. But we were joined this week by former State Representative Dan Foley, a regular on the line. Also, former State Senator Dee Dee Feldman is back. And Inez Russell Gomez, the editorial page editor for the Santa Fe New Mexican. They're going to kick things off with a discussion about even more tightened restrictions here in New Mexico that were issued by the governor to try to keep that social distancing in place. Things like liquor stores and payday lending stores now being closed. All of the restrictions have also been extended basically through April. The governor also uh, this week ordered the release, early release of some low-risk prison inmates to try to help uh, any outbreaks that might occur in the prison detention facilities. So lots going on there. Let's kick this off and send it over to Gene Grant. Mexico is starting to see COVID-19 cases grow despite efforts to slow the disease. If we haven't hit 1,000 by the time this airs, we'll probably get there this weekend. The government has extended, the governor, I should say, has extended the order through April, ordering more businesses like liquor stores, car dealers, and payday lenders to close immediately. Our line panel this week, Didi Feldman, line regular and former state senator. Daniel Foley, another line regular and former state representative. And a welcome guest, editorial page editor for the Santa Fe New Mexican, Inez Russell Gomez. She's here with us as well. Thank you all for joining remotely, of course. Uh, Inez, how is Santa Fe responding to tighten restrictions on businesses that the governor has deemed and instituted this week? What's been the impact on business? Well, obviously, everyone that has shut down is hurting. Uh, People uh, are without income. They're without places to go, all of those kinds of things. Uh, It's very hard. However, there's been a real, I think, understanding that if we stay away from each other, this pain is sharp but temporary and we will get back on our feet. Mm -hmm. I think there's a lot of respect for the governor being firm and decisive and not fooling around. Right. Daniel, the idea that businesses can, you know, you you work in a kind of business, very high touch, you gotta be around people to make deals, close deals, that kind of thing. Is remotely getting it done for, for folks or can we actually pull this off? I mean, some of these businesses cannot be done remotely. You can't do a payday loan remotely can't buy liquor remotely. So, you know, it's a tough deal for for a lot of folks. I think you can do a payday loan remotely. I think we're going to learn there's a lot of things we can actually do remotely that we didn't Mm -hmm. think we could. Um, You know, look, we're busier than we've ever been. Obviously, being in the insurance business, people are calling us to find out what's going on. Where are they? Um, You know, I, I think there's no doubt that the longer this goes, the greater change in our daily life is going to occur from this. You know, I think that we're fine. I mean, I got to tell you, one of the things that I think is going to be a huge uh, shock to people, I think is going to be education. Um, I think, you know, people say, hey, let me load my kid back up and send him to school, whether it's K through 12 or college. I think it's going to change. I think there's a real mindset that's going to change. They're going to say, why why don't they just stay here and do it on the computer and do the things they do? Because I'm watching even my own kids at the college level. Um, So I I think there's going to be some significant changes Mm -hmm. in what in our normal day-to-day life mm-hmm. uh, going forward. There's no doubt about that. I, look, I think the governor's handled this very well. I think she's done a great job. My only criticism is, and this is a typical criticism for a conservative, 
from a conservative. I just hate when we start picking winners and losers, right? I mean, why can we all go to Walmart, but we can't go to Joe's liquor store? Why right. can we all go? I mean, I, I get why we can't, mm-hmm. but it just seems like, you know, either, either you should say people can go to these stores and you can have no more than 10% of the population in that store, um, or nobody should be out. And so, right. you know, when we're telling the mom and pop store at the end of the corner that they got to close, but we're telling the, the Walmarts of the world that they get to stay open. I've heard, I've heard this point from a few folks. That makes a lot of sense. If you if the liquor store takes care to have only so many people in, does the thing on the floor to kind of tape out where you can stand, what's the problem? And yeah. I, I, I think it's, it's, a, I think it's it, the ones that it's hurting, it's hurting them the most, right? I mm-hmm. mean, the average small business has, what is it, nine days of cash on hand. Right. So, I mean, we're, we're to that point. Um, the other thing I will say that, that I, I hope if the governor's folks are listening, I've heard, a, I've heard a lot of criticism about the um, uh, workforce solutions that people are calling, trying to fill out the forms. They're, they get no acknowledgement that they filled out the form. They can't get anybody on the phone. Mm-hmm. Uh, last night, the form, I was reading that the form for small business people to get an immediate $700, they had to take it down because it didn't work right. So That's right. I just, I mean, we're going to have some bumps and bruises. I'm not, I'm not criticizing for that, but I think that we need to make sure that we're as vocal about getting on these websites. We need to be as vocal getting out in front of the media and saying, Hey, wait a minute, everybody, the website's not working correctly yet. Give us a couple days. Um, you know, just, I've, I've, but I've heard a lot of criticisms about we file for unemployment. We haven't heard anything, right. we haven't acknowledged anything. We can't get anybody. So I think, you know, how we handle this, is going to really be dictated on how quickly we can address these issues. I mean, in a, in let, me, let me go to D, let me go to Didi on that point. There's an interesting point there. Uh, you just made that last bit there. Uh, the the NPR's the Indicator podcast had an interesting thing you might have seen Didi in your Facebook feed, going back to 1918 that showed that cities that did take care and were very aggressive actually re- rebounded uh, business wise much quicker than cities that didn't. And that might bode well for New Mexico, given what uh, the governor has put in place. Would you agree with that? Yes, I would agree with that. And I think that the reason is that if you take uh, strict measures in the beginning, the uh, incidence of disease will will decrease. And that's what people are afraid of. They're afraid Mm -hmm. of going out because there is disease and so and contagion and so if you address that head on then you have a better chance of more people getting back to normal quicker than you would if you prematurely said okay let's get back to work and then a second round of of a contagion and disease came up that's right. uh, and that's what has happened. That's what happened in 1918 mm-hmm. in cities like Philadelphia, where they did not take uh, social distancing measures. Quite the contrary. They mm-hmm. had big parades and so on. Mm-hmm. Inez, once another interesting uh, sort of offshoot of this, Inez Russell Gomez, is this idea of payday loans. Let, let's think about it this way. For a lot of folks, that would probably be a fairly attractive situation at some point in a couple of weeks. Because, you know, a debt spiral could be just murder for some folks. What do we do about the payday loan thing? Is that an appropriate deal to just shut them down like that and shut off an avenue of money that could be very helpful for some people, even given what we know about uh, interest rates and all that, Inez? How, How should we approach that? That's a really hard question because yes, it's an avenue of money, mm-hmm. but if you don't have debt spiral now, you will have it later because payday loans can be almost usury. Mm-hmm. So if you can't afford the interest rates, then getting the loan is only going to put you further behind. So maybe closing them down is the way to stop further pain. Again, it's a sharp measure now to stop further pain later. Mm-hmm. I also wonder if part of the restrictions is just to stop people from going so many places. Ah. So if you go to Walmart and get everything you need at Walmart, that does hurt the mom and pop stores. It does hurt the other businesses, but you're only stopping one place. The idea is to go out as few places as possible. Mm-hmm. So if you can't go to a payday loan shop, then that's yet another place where you won't be able to pick up the virus. Mm-hmm. And as, as Dan said, uh, they can do that online if they have to. And I bet you that there's going to be call this number and Joe Smooth will give you a loan. Right. 
they're going to do it another way. They want to make money. And the people who can adapt are the ones that are going to succeed, whether the governor shuts their physical business down or not. Right. Gun and ammo shops have been deemed uh, non-essential and they are closed. A lot of folks I'm seeing online and on Facebook are having a real problem with that. In simple terms, they feel like having a gun and your ammunition to put in it is in fact essential. How should we approach that with, with gun shops? That's, you know, obviously that's the conservatives theory always, right? They love to, we love to get in the, our little groups in the garage and talk about how the government's taking all our guns all the time and mm -hmm. feeds that mantra, right? All of a sudden you can't, you can't buy a gun, you know, you can't buy ammunition. Um, <clears throat> you know, I, I think that, I think that there's, um, this is again, another example, right? I mean, are we, is it the right thing to do to say that people can't go out and purchase ammunition and purchase weapons at a time that they feel like they need them for safety purposes? Mm -hmm. I don't know. I mean, the governor's made it clear that, you know, again, it just, the, the sad part is, the frustrating part is, it seems like, which everybody does, whether it's the president or the governor, so this is not a partisan statement from me. Everybody, you know, as most politicians will tell you, never let a good crisis go to waste. There you go. We'll have to leave it there and pivot to homelessness and the people who are particularly at risk. There's so many aspects of dealing with something like a COVID-19 outbreak that I think a lot of us just never thought about. And one of the things that folks in uh, the city of Albuquerque are dealing with is how to first keep and how to deal with and manage any sort of an outbreak that happens within the homeless population here in Albuquerque. Of course, uh, that's an ongoing struggle in terms of uh, the homeless population and getting them the services they need in general only made more difficult in a time like this with a, a huge health risk. Uh, correspondent Megan, Ka uh, Megan Kamrick was joined by representatives from the city, Albuquerque heading home, as well as the uh, health care for the homeless here in Albuquerque to talk about their strategies and approaches to COVID-19 and the homeless population here in the city. I'm joined today by Dennis Plummer. He's CEO of Albuquerque Heading Home. Jenny Metzler is Executive Director of Albuquerque Healthcare for the Homeless. And Lisa Uval is Deputy Director of Housing and Homelessness for the City of Albuquerque. Thank you all for joining us as we socially distance uh, from our studio, home studios. Dennis, let me start with you. Your organization has the contract to manage the main homeless shelter in Albuquerque on the west side. What steps are in place right now to screen people and isolate them for the COVID-19 virus? Sure, thank you for having us today. Um, out at the west side, what we're doing is a massive partnership with the city, the Medical Reserve Corps and Healthcare for the Homeless. A number of medical providers have really stepped up. And so with that, we've been able to establish a medical clinic on site. Um, we have screening that's being done there, as well as isolating three units out there for persons who are awaiting further testing for COVID or have been tested and are awaiting results. And then we are also ready for any COVID positive that we might have of, of any diagnosis. Are they screened when they get out there? Or are they screened before they get on the buses that take them out there? So it, it happens both ways. We um, screen everyone as they come in, including staff uh, into the building so that we have a, um, a temperature gauge and the questions that we ask as they come in. On occasion, we have been able to add our pickup sites as well before they get on the bus. And so we're trying to do that as frontline as we can. We're waiting more thermometers as well. So you haven't had any cases yet at, on the, at the shelter? That's correct. We have not. Yeah. Okay. We're taping this on March 31st, I should say. So, okay. You know, things change quickly. So, um, and so what are the next steps if you do get a positive case? What happens? So the partnership uh, that meets daily, um, led by the city, has developed a flowchart of operations. And so we have in place procedures and protocols uh, for a chain of communication so if we had um, someone who was tested positive, then they would go into the isolation room and we have staff that are equipped to manage those um, isolated units. Lisa, how many beds does the city have in total for homeless folks? In total, there's about 900 emergency shelter beds in the city of Albuquerque emergency shelter system. Uh, about half of those beds are located at the Westside Emergency Housing Center. 
And so following up, is what do we have a certain number set aside for COVID cases as those come up? We, what we've really been focused on, as Dennis said, is developing a screening, testing, and isolation process at the Westside Emergency Housing Center, um, largely because that is our largest uh, center where folks are living in you know, pretty dense conditions under normal times. I think Dennis can maybe speak better than I can to the exact number of isolation beds that we have at the Westside Emergency Housing Center. Um, and as Dennis mentioned, we're also working on, or we really have built-in motel vouchers to a limited extent as well as a way to increase isolation spaces for folks that may have COVID-19 that are awaiting test results or that do have it. I think we recognize that this is a very fluid situation. As of right now, our isolation unit for confirmed cases is empty. It could be a totally different story three days from now, 10 days from now. So we have something in place for this moment, but we know as the situation develops, we may need to identify other isolation units as well. I know some other cities have actually rented out entire hotels or increased motel space. Is that a possibility? It certainly is, um, and I know that's something that the Department of Health is looking at as sort of a systems level across the state is the possibility of using hotels to provide isolated recovery spaces for people experiencing homelessness, but there's others as well that, that may need that kind of um, isolated setting. So they're looking at how they can sort of set that up statewide at a systems level. Um, for right now, at a smaller scale, the city of Albuquerque is able to administer some motel vouchers for folks that are experiencing homelessness, particularly those who are awaiting test results. And I wanna stress, cause there's been some confusion about this, that this is not a general motel voucher program that we're running. I know lots of folks are looking for that resource. There's not a number to call to get a motel voucher. We're really working with our medical partners at the Westside Emergency Housing Center to identify um, who needs a motel voucher. So we're using those resources very strategically. Jenny, I want to turn to you. Uh, how are you adapting at Healthcare for the Homeless to the coronavirus in your services to get people the help they need where they are, but to minimize the spread of the virus? For the past three weeks, we have had 55 to 60 percent of our staff working remotely. Uh, the behavioral health folks are doing counseling via telehealth. The case managers are doing home visits uh, and telephone support to people who have been housed, helping them to get their basic needs met. Of course, our clinical providers are still here, but they're on a, a rotation. We're trying to keep a healthy bench. Increasingly, we're seeing fewer and fewer people at our first in Mountain campus, which makes sense because the more urging there is for social or for uh, physical distancing, people, people who are already very socially isolated because of their homelessness, um, people are getting the message. People on the streets get the message as well. And so they're not coming to, people aren't coming to health centers across New Mexico because they're being asked not to if it's not necessary. So we uh, each week have been increasing mobilization of street medicine teams, our social services staff, our harm reduction staff, behavioral health, all the others enrollers for Medicaid are going out in teams um, to all of these sites that the city has been putting in place or had in place other shelters and as well to encampments. There's some people who won't go into shelters and uh, the Street Medicine Institute, which is, is one of the models that guides our teams, um, has put out some recommendations for how to help people isolate or quarantine and quarantine in, in place, um, how encampments can be organized and structured in a way where people are distancing and maybe not clumped up. So what are the main challenges that the street medicine folks that you're sending out are trying to deal with? People don't have sanitation, they don't have hygiene, maybe they do move around, maybe it's about coaching them not to, to put their tents farther apart. Um, I know that there are some city and county efforts to get more sanitation, hand washing to some of those encampments. Something we're hearing from our street outreach teams, and I say Albuquerque Healthcare for the Homelessness teams, as well as this coordinated group, is that um, either people are in shelters or their encampments are harder and harder to find. Um, and they are secluding, they are trying to be off the radar and people are afraid and they have reason to be, they're highly vulnerable. Uh, so we're just gonna have to work harder to find people because they're there and they need the services we can provide. And this can't be addressed um, you know, on the shoulders of any one entity or leaving out any one population. This is a public health issue. It's a population-based response. Um, and we really need to make sure that everyone is, it has access to our public health measures and our coordinated emergency response. Well, on that note, I do want to ask, I, I actually 
was out in the international district this weekend and I talked to some folks who have been in, at an encampment. Um, I stayed far, I did proper social distancing, but um, they said that last week, um, some officials from the city came and told everyone they had to clear out in 20 minutes and they couldn't gather up all their stuff in that amount of time. And a, a lot of their stuff got thrown in a dumpster, including their ID papers. Um, and I know that the CDC has guidelines about this and they recommend not clearing encampments because it can spread COVID. So I'm curious <laughs> if this is if this is happening or, or is there some other alternative we can find to like not just breaking up encampments and sending people out onto the street? Yeah, I mean, this, this encampment ish, um, issue is obviously very sensitive and there's no easy or clear cut answer. Um, certainly there were some recommendations from the CDC within the last few days to local communities uh, recommending that communities not um, disperse encampments. I, in Albuquerque, it's, you know, and I think other local communities are grappling with this as well. Um, it's not quite that clear cut because certainly allowing a large encampment or an encampment to kind of establish itself, especially if it grows over time, also presents other public health risks, particularly if folks don't have safe ways to use the bathroom or dispose of needles if they're using things like that. Um, so we are following our, the process that we've had in place uh, regarding encampments. Um, but I will add a couple pieces to that. Um, one is we definitely recognize the need to provide portable restrooms and hand washing stations. I mean, one thing we know is that for folks living outside, many of the places where they were able to take care of basic hygiene and needs are now closed because of all the, um, because businesses are closed, community centers are closed, libraries are closed. So as a community, we have a responsibility to meet that need. So we are working on that as a city to provide hand washing stations and portable restrooms. And we're currently just identifying where are those, where are those locations most needed. I will say um, the story that you just described about folks being asked to vacate an area in 20 minutes and not having a chance to take their personal belongings does not at all um, match our process and procedure for encampment. If someone is camped in an area that's hazardous, then we would ask them to move immediately. Obviously, if they were at, at, at risk of, um, you know, if they were at risk of injury or death, or there's for some reason the encampment was place, placing others at risk. Um, but generally, we do give 24 hours notice for people to leave an encampment. Um, people do have an opportunity to take their personal belongings with them. And so maybe Megan, you and I can follow up offline after this. I'd like to get some more information about you know who you talked to and, and where they were located so we can follow up on that. But that certainly does not describe our typical process. And um, it's not that is not a process. We haven't changed our process. You know, we're not doing things uh, as you described under these current circumstances. So what they described to me was atypical, what you're saying is happening, right? Yes, okay. yes, that is correct. So I definitely would like to follow up with you and, and okay. learn more about that. Well, I want to thank you all for coming and talking about this. Um, obviously, things are evolving quickly, so we will see um, <laughs> how things change with the coronavirus and would love to revisit with you in the future. We want to take a break now from the COVID-19 news. Uh, it is the second Friday of the month. That means it's time for our land. This is our environmental series that we do once a month on New Mexico's environmental past, present, and future. Correspondent Laura Pascas, this week she sits down with Santa Fe National Forest firefighter Terrence Gallegos. He went to Australia to help combat the country's recent unprecedented brush fires there, which you might remember burned more than 72,000 square miles, destroyed more than 6,000 buildings. Based on that experience, Laura wants to talk with him about his experiences, as well as previewing this uh, summer's fire season here in New Mexico. Hi, Terrence. Hi. <laughs> so what was that like coming from sort of northern New Mexico winter and flying into <laughs> Australia summer bushfires? Yeah, it was, uh, it's a little bit of a shock to the system. The travel is, uh, is hard. It's a 14-hour flight, and there's quite a bit of jet lag associated with that. And then 
like you said, you, you're coming from wearing coats and hats and gloves and, you know, to maybe wearing shorts on your day off. And what was the landscape like? What were the fires like that you were working on? So primarily we were on the, the coast, coastal area of New South Wales. So a lot of eucalyptus and, uh, and then it transitions into like a, a, what they call a coastal heath. Um, but uh, pretty large fires. The, the state of New South Wales is about the size of Texas. So, and the entire coast was impacted by fire. So if you think about the state of Texas and just imagine one, one whole side of it um, on fire, that's, that's kind of what it was like. And is that like anything that you had ever seen before in your career? Yeah, I mean, the scale wasn't something that really took me aback, really. You know, we, we get large wildfires, you know, in the Southwest and in, in the U.S., as you know. And, you know, I've been on some fires in Alaska that, that are very large and British Columbia as well. So the scale didn't really surprise me, I would say. Uh, I would say uh, the way the eucalyptus uh, burns, it's very intense. It's probably something similar to what you would see in maybe Florida because they have a lot of, uh, the eucalyptus has a lot of oils and stuff in it like that. So it makes it a little more explosive fuel model. But as far as the scale, it wasn't, it wasn't something that, that really shocked me. So watching from here, watching the news of what was happening, it seemed really different. I mean, I, I recognize that Australia has these annual bushfires and mm -hmm. some seasons are worse than others, but it seemed so big and so overwhelming and, and really quite scary. Yeah, yeah, it was, uh, it was unprecedented for them. And, and you're correct, they, they do deal with bushfires every year, but this year was, was unprecedented. And they, you know, the folks at New South Wales said that many times. And so when you have uh, that much fire on the landscape, you know, and you, you're, you have a resource draw, you know, hence the need for, to bring in some Americans and Canadians. And, and we actually worked with quite a few Canadians down there as well. So just to kind of bridge that gap, give them some help. And what was happening or what is happening that these unprecedented fires are happening? I think, you know, for them, it was a kind of combination of, of drought. They had a real bad kind of winter drought and then it, it just proceeded right into fire season. They didn't get much relief. So they were, they were fighting some pretty long-term drought in there combined with, you know, the, the explosiveness of the fields and how quickly it, a fire can move in that country is kind of, you know, the big, big issues they were dealing with there. One of the things that when I was reading up on kind of the fires as they're starting to die down, that there were, I mean, like 5,000 buildings destroyed and they estimate a billion animals died in these fires. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about what you saw and um, kind of what that was like to be there. Yeah, so, you know, as you drive down through the coast from Sydney uh, down to where, where all the fires were impacting, there's a lot of small coastal towns there, heavily reliant on, on um, tourism and, and stuff like that. Beautiful, beautiful areas. And, and the, the fires were so intense that they were, they were coming off the, you know, kind of the upper elevation and moving at a pretty fast rate, kind of downhill towards the coast with the winds behind them. And, there was, there was a lot of those small communities that, that got impacted. And, and really what, what impacted a lot of the structures there wasn't just a massive fire front per se, but the spotting there is something that I've never really seen before. There's, there's stuff coming out of the air that's two, three feet long and on fire. And, you know, they were, they were saying up to five, six kilometers of spotting. So, you know, that's what, what impacted a lot of structures is they just couldn't keep up with the amount of spots that were occurring around people's property and stuff like that, so. So when you talk about unprecedented fire, you know, here in New Mexico, it's hard not to think of less conscious. Mm -hmm. And we did a show a couple of years ago where we went back to the burn scar. Um, did you work on that fire? I did, I was actually the, the assistant fire management officer out of Española, so at that time it had impacted our district as well. It started on Hemis and obviously moved through, through quite a bit of land ownership and our district was, was one of them. 
I mean, we've talked to a number of different people who have talked to us about like what surprised them about that fire. Mm -hmm. What surprised you? I think how 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 big it got so quickly. I think uh, it made a forty-seven thousand acre run in about twelve hours. So that's that's big fire and that's quick. That's moving pretty quick and you know and at that point it's you know column collapse kind of creating its own weather that type of fire behavior once you start getting that occurring it's it's going to get big on you and it's going to get big fast and you know at that point you're just kind of trying to protect life and property really can you describe that column collapse and and how that i think lots of us even from albuquerque you could see that cloud that yeah. day in june what's happening there so it's building up so much convective heat and putting so much ash and heat in the air it's it's like essentially building its own thunder cell and so you know when a thunder cell when you think about rain and a thunder cell it builds and builds and builds and then it dumps rain and when it dumps rain you get a, a lot of outflow winds mm -hmm. so that's what what a big convective column can do it's basically like a big t-cell and then when it collapses it shoots wind out 360 degrees and sometimes you get a little bit of moisture with it too in addition to less conscious what are some of the other um sort of bigger unprecedented uh game-changing fires have you worked on here in new mexico um i would say las conscious was probably the largest fire that I was on, I wasn't. I wasn't on the one in the Gila, the Whitewater Baldy, which which passed Las Conchas for acreage um, the following year, actually. And when I was on the Hotshot crew, we had the Punil fire, which was the largest at the time. So it seems like every year there's a a new largest fire, you know, occurring out there. So um, they're they're all pretty similar. You know, we we kind of like to say fire is fire in this business. It's not. It, it doesn't really matter what field type is on fire or where you're at. You're, you're still dealing with the same complexities and values at risks and, and things like that, trying to keep folks safe. So. so are there any similarities, especially as you know, um, people have talked about the impacts that climate change and warming have on forests like the Jemez, um, even here in the Santa Fe National Forest, and there's been talk of how warming affected the fires in Australia. Mm -hmm. What kinds of lessons are um, you all having to learn as you're facing these changing conditions? Yeah, it you know it it brings a lot of comple uh, complexities and it it brings longer duration to our fire seasons. It seems like we're having less and less of a fire season and more of a fire year. It seems like across the country. So, you know that. It, it adds a lot of complexities when it comes to resource management and, and folks on the ground and fatigue and, you know, all that stuff. It kind of starts to compound when you're, when you're dealing with, you know, incidents longer as opposed to, okay, fire season used to be six months and then folks had a, had a chance to rest or whatever. But now it seems like, you know, those, those fire seasons are extending out longer and longer. And what are you anticipating or planning for for this year's fire season? Well, we got we got an update from the weather service, and they're they're calling for a little drier, uh, warmer spring. So, you know that could kind of kick things off a little earlier for us here in the southwest. But it always depends on kind of that spring moisture. Mm -hmm. You know, being in New Mexico, I'm sure you know that sometimes we get that kind of freak winter storm around Easter or something like that, and that can kind of knock things back for a little while, but if we stay dry through the spring and roll right into fire season, then we could have potential for some kind of larger problematic fires. And in terms of this um, winter and spring, are you all doing controlled fires? Yeah, yeah, so during the winter time, we try to do what we call some, some pile burning. So a lot of times we'll, our, our field shop will kind of create some, some thinning projects where there's some hazardous field piled We'll try to take care of that in the winter time. That's the best time to do it. Um, it's not always the best for the smoke because the ventilation can be kind of tough to get a good window for that, but um, it's a good time to take care of it because the snow keeps it in check. So I feel like when there's like a big wildfire and lots of firefighters come into a community, we're all super grateful and we get like really um, 
supportive and you know you see like the signs along the road yeah. and people want to donate food and and but during like prescribed fire season it seems like we're yeah. not always that welcoming i was wondering if you could talk a little bit about what communities what we need to be doing to be supporting efforts and kind of um whether that's accepting smoke or um thinking about how to better protect our communities before there's a fire. Can yeah. you talk about those? Yeah, I think smoke is, is a big a big thing. And I think that's what kind of wears people's support down for prescribed fire. Um, but I think, you know, it's really important to understand that, you know, yeah, there's, there's gonna be some smoke impacts and maybe they're short duration, but you also, could get a wildfire that lasts for weeks you know when when the wallow was going the city of albuquerque was inundated with smoke for two weeks where the air quality got really bad so it's a trade-off and i think you know as far as the community support i think it's it's being that voice and saying yeah we want this to happen because i think there's a vast majority of the public out there that, that are really supportive of, of the things we do, the prescribed fire, managing wildfire for resource objectives, um, but they're not, they're not always the most boisterous. So I think just talking with their neighbors and saying, you know, this is, this is a good thing actually, what they're doing. Okay, well, Terrence, thank you so much for joining well, us Thank you, today. I appreciate it. Thanks. mentioned this earlier, but it's a very important week in both the Christian and Jewish faith traditions, beginning of Passover, which is an eight-day celebration that commemorates the Israelites' emancipation from Egyptian slavery, uh, and it is usually um, celebrated or recognized with families getting together for Seder meals uh, and to retell the story of the Exodus. Of course, it's also Easter Sunday, which in New Mexico means a lot of pilgrimages to places like Tomei Hill and Chimayo, and of course those things are all being discouraged and closed down because of the COVID-19 outbreak. So we wanted to talk to some folks, uh, some worshipers, and find out how they are working to still worship and celebrate these days uh, during the time of COVID-19. For many Christians, Holy Week is the most important week of the year. For Jewish families, this week also marks the beginning of Passover, but this is no ordinary year. And I may have correspondent Megan Kamrick spoke with people from both faith communities about how they are adjusting their plans this year because of the coronavirus. I'm joined today by Victoria Trujillo, who would have celebrated her 48th year making the walking pilgrimage to El Santuario de Chimayo in northern New Mexico. It's a shrine that draws thousands of people from around the world. Also joining me is Sarah Leiter. She is Community Outreach Coordinator with Hillel House at the University of New Mexico. It's the Center for Jewish Student and Young Professional Life in Albuquerque. Thank you both for joining us on Zoom. Thank you for this. Thank you for asking Victoria, the Archdiocese of Santa Fe has closed the Chimayo site for now, and it's discouraging pilgrims from going. Why has this annual walk been such an important part of your Easter tradition every year? Well, I like to celebrate Easter, and in order to celebrate Easter, we have Good Friday. So, um, like, as you know, I've been doing this for that many years. Um, a couple of years of those, all of those years, um, I have been uh, possible, I had a couple of surgeries that would have been impossible to do the walk. So, but I was able to after all. It's, it's a tradition, it's uh, both religious and it's my spiritual connection with uh, Easter and with the Holy Week. So Why is it so meaningful to be with all these other people doing this? Because it reinforces my faith. I, uh, I, I get from all of those hundreds and hundreds of people um, the same feeling of strength and hope. So that's, that's the reason why I do the work. And I want to turn to you, Sarah. What are the key values for you that Passover embodies? So for me, it's really um, a family holiday. 
Um, more than any other Jewish holiday in the year, this is the holiday when the family comes together. Um, and traditionally it's about sort of retelling the biblical story of Exodus when the Israelites um, were freed from slavery in Egypt. And so Passover is all about coming together as a family and um, telling that, the older generations telling that story to the younger generations. So even more than the High Holy Days, this is definitely about families coming together to be together and share stories. Definitely. Mm -hmm. And what would you normally be doing this time of year preparing for Passover? So I'm uh, from Los Angeles. And so usually for Passover, I fly home to Los Angeles. Um, and my family is all spread out across the United States. And so they usually fly back for Passover as well. And this is the one time per year that really all of us fly back to be together. Um, so usually I'd be doing that, um, cleaning my house, getting rid of food that's not kosher or appropriate for Passover. This year I'm not doing any of that. I'm uh, staying in New Mexico and um, we're gonna do the Passover Seder dinner via Zoom. And that's, I see that's called a Zader <laughs> online. Mm -hmm. The idea of a virtual Seder then on Zoom, it, it's totally new. So how do people know what the right thing to do is if they're doing it correctly? So I think really a lot of Judaism actually is about sort of figuring out how to adapt to the time and the circumstances. So we're going to figure it out as we go. Um, for my own family, we sort of went through the Haggadah, which is the sort of guidebook for the Seder. Um, and there are 15 steps. And so we sort of pre-assigned each step to different family members. And so we'll see how it goes. What about the specific foods you're supposed to have? Is that possible? It's possible for some foods. Um, you know, there are uh, a whole series of ritual foods that you're supposed to have, matzah being the most famous, uh, the unleavened bread. Um, so some of that I was able to find in the grocery stores here in Albuquerque. Um, other foods I'm gonna have to improvise. Instead of a bitter herb, I'm gonna use either a lime or cocoa powder, both of which are, I think, bitter. Um, so things like that, sort of substituting foods um, that are available for the traditional ritual foods that are not available. And Victoria, how will you observe Good Friday this year if you can't walk to Chimayo? Well, I am choosing a spot that I will be carrying my cross and do the walk. Um, what is, where is possible? Uh, somewhere in the petroglyphics, probably. Um, there, there are certain areas that is, uh, they are still open and you know, be close to nature and still have the time to meditate and to uh, pray while I carry the cross. It will be very different not being with hundreds of other pilgrims. It, it will be, but um, this is what the times are born for, so we have to, we have to do the best we can. Do you think, um, given the strange times we're in, the things that Holy Week is about will, are helping you adapt to these times? Well, uh, we have the support of our parish. Uh, they're doing a streamline. So tomorrow they'll do the washing of the uh, feet. They'll, they still have, we still have our uh, daily mass uh, streamline. So we are blessed to, to continue not being together, but celebrating and knowing that uh, the whole parish is, is together at their homes, but, but we can still celebrate and that's important. What kind of impact do you think this time will have on these traditions in the future and on people's faith? I believe it's gonna strengthen people's faith. Um, the ones that we have been able, the ones that we've been lucky to follow traditions and do all of these things, we are gonna appreciate it so much more. And the ones that have not started these traditions, probably they will be looking at, at, at it and, and, and start their own traditions in the children and in their grandchildren. What do you think, Sarah? I agree. And I think that it's also, you know, as tough as it is not being physically together with family and friends right now, it really is going to help us um, sort of think about what is really important to each of us. And so I think that is going to be a positive outcome. 
Well, I want to thank you both for coming and talking about this, taking time from this week that's important for both of you. Thank you so much. Thank you. The line panel also wanted to weigh in on the um, Faith Week issues around COVID-19. The governor did not include churches in her, her restrictions, although uh, gatherings of above five people are still uh, enforced. But we wanted to find out what the uh, line folks thought about how the religious community seems to be stepping up and taking their cue from the governor and finding alternative ways for worship during this unusual time. Welcome back to The Line. We're going to continue the faith discussion here because it's a pitiful part of the lives of so many people in New Mexico. Uh, Dee, I want to ask you this first. Not just the Christian and Jewish communities, faith groups of all kinds are dramatically rethinking how they serve their communities and, their com and, and the wider community around them. How, you know, these challenges are extraordinary when you really, really think about what faith means to folks in New Mexico. What's your first, your general sense of how, how faith folks are going to approach this? Well, I think that once the initial shock got over, um, there, there's some really creative solutions, not just the typical technological solutions, mm -hmm. online um, uh, kind of services, but also these drive-ins where, you know, people can come in their cars and it can be a service that accommodates up to a thousand people. Mm -hmm. And then on the um, Jewish side, the uh, takeout Seder boxes, uh, oh, which right. provide all of the all of the um, fixings for a, a Passover Seder, uh, which is was primarily the the kind of celebration that Jewish folks do at this t Passover season, rather than congregating in um, in big services like uh, in the fall. Mm -hmm. So um, it's, it's been pretty good. And I think there's been a lot of cooperation. I think in other parts of the co country, uh, there have been some churches in Florida that have refused the order. And uh, the result is immediate, uh, immediate uh, spread right. of COVID-19. We've had some folks in Southern New Mexico uh, stating the same. They're just going to have service as usual. You know, Inez, Northern New Mexico, of course, Holy Week is a very big deal. What's your sense of how you're seeing Holy Week being uh, celebrated this week, uh, this year, as opposed to other years? Um, it's very personal because you have to do it in your home, whether with streaming services. If you're Catholic, uh, the cathedral is streaming uh, daily Lenten masses. Um, different churches are going to have their tritium services because today's Holy Thursday. It's one of the most important days of the church year going to Good Friday and then uh, the Easter vigil. Mm -hmm. It's very hard. Lent um, is so important, not just the end of it, but the whole process. So if you have vowed to go to mass daily and those kinds of things, all of that was stopped in the middle. Um, but I'm really proud of our church leaders, uh, whether they're Christian or Jewish, of uh, religious leaders uh, or any kind because they're saying we have to keep the good of the community. Mm -hmm. And you think about the spring, that is also a time when uh, traditional people, the Pueblos have a lot of ceremonials, different things. They're not gonna have Easter dances at San Felipe oh. and other Pueblos that the governors there have said, we're not going to do this for the health of our people. And I think that the idea of religion, which is that we love each other, that we love God, is that we take care of each other. And these religious leaders are showing the good of everybody comes before their own need to get up in front of somebody and preach. Mm -hmm. And I think we don't have an order to close churches here. The governor avoided that because she knows that there's a first amendment question, but our religious leaders have stepped up and said, we're gonna do the right thing for the people who belong to our faith communities. Mm -hmm. It's a good point that the governor, what the governor didn't do, that could have been a real scrum at some point and, and gotten a little weird. And Dan, you know, part and parcel of faith is fellowship. I mean, certainly it's almost silly to say out loud and fellowship is about literally congregating, getting together, getting, you know, in one place. This is going to be a big missing piece for a lot of folks that we all know personally that where faith is just so important. What are you seeing in Rio Rancho and other places in your peer group of how folks are handling Holy Week this week? So the governor didn't give a mandate that churches close, but she did say you can't have groups of more than now. I think it's 10 people. Right. Uh, Five. Yeah. 
five, so it's pretty hard for any type of a, a church to meet. And I think they all took that as a, a meeting that they should should not be meeting. Plus, um, you know, I don't think anybody wants to be responsible for spreading uh, spreading the virus. So, you know, there's a lot of virtual stuff going on. I mean, churches were already moving in that direction. Um, you know, we've been making fun of televangelists for 20 years now. And, um, you know, <laughs> they're making a resurgence. Um, you know, I noticed a lot of local churches have stepped up their game with technologies so that they can have their, their services uh, online, which in the past they normally wouldn't have done that. Mm-hmm. So I think this is going to be another example of, you know, the stuff we were talking about at the very beginning about kind of a, a systematic change in our lifestyle. I mean, are we going to get up and go to church ever again? Or are you going to get up in the morning and flip on services and watch them from the cathedral or watch them from, you know, it seems like this may become a more acceptable way right. of attending church now that this is, this has occurred. So it's going to be interesting to see if churches can bring people back in uh, to actually attend services versus uh, watching them online. But, you know, everything's been the same, I think, mm-hmm. you know, as far as Rio Rancho, we've, you know, we've got, seconds. Mm-hmm. we've got as many churches as we do car dealerships. We're, you know, we're, we're, we're packed, ready to go. Yeah. Hey, thanks to you guys all once again for hopping online. I know this is a bit of a challenge to do it from home a little bit, but you guys were brilliant today. I really want to thank you and please stay safe. You too. This week, we also wanted to check up on a really important COVID-19 story that we've been following here on the show. And that is the outbreak on the Navajo Nation as well as uh, other tribal communities. This week, there were confirmed cases in San Felipe and Zia Pueblo. There was also a reported death on Zuni Pueblo. And these are really scary situations. When you think about uh, the Navajo Nation, for instance, there have been more deaths from COVID-19 so far there than the entire state of New Mexico. They have limited resources, pre-existing health conditions, Uh, for a lot of their um, tribal members that make this a really scary situation for them. Correspondent Laura Paskus caught up with Noelle Smith. She's a reporter at the Farmington Daily Times up in San Juan County to find out the latest, including a new curfew that goes in place this weekend for the Navajo Nation. On the Navajo Nation, services we take for granted sometimes are hard to find in the best of times. But the COVID-19 pandemic has stretched scarce resources to the breaking point. They'll head into a 57-hour curfew this weekend as the tribe tries to combat infection rates several times higher than in the rest of Arizona and New Mexico. Laura Pascas came up with the idea of checking in with journalists around the state as they cover the pandemic. She was able to get a few minutes in with Noelle Smith, who covers the Navajo Nation for the Farmington Daily Times. Noelle, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. So the number of COVID-19 cases and deaths on the Navajo Nation has continued to climb over the past couple of weeks, but I understand that the peak is still ahead. Can you talk about what we might be expecting over the next couple of weeks? Uh, Definitely an increase as far as the uh, number of cases that uh, come out as positive for COVID-19. In a press release, in a town hall meeting, I think it was last week, uh, Navajo Nation President Jonathan Nez uh, said that the uh, test results they've been receiving have been lagging behind a couple of days or up to three days. So these numbers keep growing. And you've seen um, the tribal government has enacted increasing restrictions. Um, what is what are some of the measures that the tribal government is taking to try and control the spread right now? In terms of public health emergency orders, though there have been five issued through the Department of Health for the Navajo Nation, and the most recent one implements a curfew for this weekend um, for residents on the Navajo Nation. The roads will still be open, but the potential of you getting stopped from by a tribal police officer or coming across a checkpoint by the Navajo Nation Department is greater. And they will ask you where you are traveling to and remind you that there is a curfew in place. Navajo Police Chief Philip Francisco has said that the potential um, punishment for 
getting a citation. And if the, you know, the Navajo court finds you guilty, it could be up to a $1,000 fine and or 30 days in jail. And do you have a sense of how the virus spread so quickly across the Navajo Nation? I know they were saying like the, the first three cases were all um, due to travel by the individuals. And I think what is occurring is that on the Navajo Nation, you tend to have where you have multiple generations living together. So you'll have, have maybe a set of grandparents and then parents and then the children and maybe the uh, children's children. Or you'll have cases where there might be an acre of land and have more than one residential home. So you might have a Hogan, a mobile home, and a standard home, and they will all each have family members those uh, buildings. So when family member becomes uh, infected, chances are the um, virus can spread to the other family members and then out to the community. Noelle, can you talk a little bit about some of the unique challenges that tribal communities face in New Mexico and addressing um, the cases as well as trying to minimize the impacts and the spread of COVID-19? I would say that it's definitely geography. Um, a lot of, like on Navajo Nation, you're talking about an area that's 27,000 square miles and roughly the size of West Virginia. And you have 12 uh, healthcare facilities within that span. So if you think of how many hospitals West Virginia has for its population compared to Navajo Nation, it's definitely going to be inadequate. And then you have, of course, the contributing factors, which are, you know, high rates of diabetes, uh, cancer rates are high due to environmental factors on uh, tribal lands. Um, you have low incomes, so people can't afford, you know, their own private insurance to seek medical services from private hospitals hospitals. IHS is it. In addition to the, the outbreaks that we're seeing on the Navajo Nation, this week there was also the report of outbreaks on Pueblos, including Zia and San Felipe. And this week you also reported a death at the Pueblo of Zuni. I was wondering if you could help our audience understand why these outbreaks are so particularly alarming for our tribal communities in New Mexico and the Southwest. Well, I found it alarming because my main beat here at the Daily Times is you know, covering Navajo Nation, and that's the portion that is in San Juan County. Um, but when I looked at the uh, numbers that the New Mexico Department of Health released through the governor's office, you know, I did see that there was clusters reported of cases in San Felipe Pueblo, when Zia Pueblo, so San Felipe had 52 cases, and Zia, I think it was 31. And then Zuni, through the Pueblo of Zuni, through their Facebook page, released that information about um, confirmation of a tribal member there passing away from COVID-19. And the reason why I found those of interest is because of the population size of these Pueblos. Um, definitely not as large as Navajo Nation. I think the 2010 census had like 300,000 plus members for Navajo. And maybe half of those live on the reservation. So you're looking at you know, potentially 150,000 Navajos living on their homelands. Pueblos definitely do not reach that high in population. And so to have 52 members in San Felipe become uh, test positive for COVID-19 is significant because those communities are small and, and Pueblos tend to stay within their traditional homelands um, as opposed to Navajo, where we see you know, our members spread across three states. And a lot of us live in border towns or urban areas like Phoenix, Albuquerque, Denver, when something like this happens, it's like, how do you convey the message of, it's important for you to stay home, that you have to cut back your, you know, your normal way of living, um, especially if you're so used to getting in your vehicle and driving an hour to the nearest uh, Walmart for your resources and driving home or driving to town to get water because you may not have plumbing in your home. 
But now that you know the virus is here and it is infecting people and have these numbers rise, you know, that way of life has to be adjusted. And Thank you so much for joining us and we will continue to watch your coverage at the Daily Times. Thank you for your coverage and I hope that you and your family stay safe and healthy. Thank you, Noelle Smith. Thanks, Laura, and same to you. That's it for this week's New Mexico in Focus, but we do want to remind you of our podcast that we're doing with KUNM Radio and the Santa Fe Reporter each and every night with COVID-19 related information and guests talking about a wide variety of topics. Again, trying to get you all as much information as possible so you can make good decisions for you and your family during these difficult times. That podcast is the Your New Mexico Government podcast. It's something we started during the legislative session and now carried it over into the COVID-19 response. You can find that on any of our websites. You can also subscribe to the podcast on Spotify, iTunes, and any of the other places you get your podcasts. So please do that today and share the word. We'd love to hear from you about what you're experiencing going through. There's a phone number you can call, but we encourage you to check that out. We'll leave you with some thoughts from Gene Grant, the host of New Mexico in Focus this week as well as information about a Facebook Live we did this week you might be interested in on making homemade face masks to help the spread, curb the spread of COVID-19. It can't be said enough, we are in a crucial time here in New Mexico when it comes to COVID-19. Staying home and keeping your kids home while you shop is the way to go. It truly is up to us to keep each other safe. One sure way to do that is follow the state and federal recommendations to wear a mask when you have to go to the market or to the pharmacy or anywhere else there's going to be people, even for standing in line. Now that we have a new order to limit customers in stores, that's going to be important. Earlier in the week, I chatted with some local volunteers who are making masks for home and medical use. You can find that on the Focus on New Mexico Facebook page. Thanks again for joining us and for staying informed and engaged. We'll see you again next week in Focus.